how they're going to die. Boy, it sure frees us of some anxiety. Because God loves your child even more than you do. And this passage deals with this, deals with this idea of God's love, his faithful love for his people. And so this morning, we're going to dive right into this text. Because the truth is, is that this portion of Scripture is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It really is the longest sermon in the New Testament, if you don't count the Gospels as one long sermon. But the truth is, is that Stephen comes in response to those who are questioning him, and we're going to be looking at how Stephen responds to the accusations that have been levied against him. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 53, and I know that sounds like a large chunk, but the reality is it all goes together. It needs to stay there together. And so let's go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to be reading from chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. You can read along with us on the screens, or you can read along in in your Bibles. You can listen. And this is what it says. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then... He went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abram had bought from a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of this promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. 
When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brother's children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they have rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise him up for you, a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. We do not know what has become of him, And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it's written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Melech and the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hand. The house, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Father, as we look at your word this morning, may we see with hearts and ears that have been circumcised that they would be through you That, Father, may we see with your understanding, hear with your understanding, and respond 
with your understanding. Father, may you push aside distractions that are taking place in our hearts and minds right now. And may we rejoice over this passage together as we look at the answer that you gave Stephen, one that directly spoke of your presence and promise. Father, may we find our strength and our encouragement into you today. And may your word be living and powerful within us. Father, move me aside. Bring forth your word. And may each of us rejoice in the power of your presence and promise. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Understanding the presence and promise of God is essential to experiencing the freedom of his deliverance in humble submission to him. Understanding the presence and promise of God is essential to experiencing the freedom of his deliverance in humble submission to him. Understanding God and his freedom. Understanding God and his freedom is at the heart of this passage. And one of the things that we can look at as this passage begins is the fact that Stephen is dealing with this question that has been posed to him. See, in Christianity, and more specifically in America, Stephen's life is generally not mentioned when we share the gospel of Christ. It's not the high point of selling Christianity, is it? Hey, come and you too will die, right? We know that later on, next week, we'll be looking at Stephen and how he's martyred for his faith. And so Stephen is not usually the one that we go and bring to people and say, hey, we want you to come to Jesus so that you too might die. The reality is, is that Stephen, life is actually a picture of what God calls us to do, which is die to ourself and take on the life of Christ. And so, when we often share the gospel in America, we have come to a place where we often soften the blow of sin and emphasize the gains of Christ's salvation. It's easier that way, I think, for many of us. We get to that kind of turning point. Do you, do you push? I don't know if you've seen the, the movie um, A Few Good Men. And there's a point where Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men comes to a decision point where he either has to, to press the colonel with a direct question or he's got to just hold back. And I think for many of us, when we're coming to a place of sharing the gospel of Christ, we too get to that same decision point. Do I, do I come forward and share what the cost really is? Am I really willing to give up the cost and to experience the weight of what I'm walking in and sharing the gospel? Or do I just back off and soften the blow because it's safe? The truth is we could probably come up with 
different names where we see even today ministers on TV who emphasize the grace of God without dealing with the sin of man. See, the gospel's real easy if we simply deal with the grace of God. The problem is, is it's not the gospel. The gospel deals with the fact that we are sinners first and that then God came through his son Jesus, went to the cross, died in his perfect righteousness, dying for our sin so that we might have life in him. That's the gospel. And it's precisely because we understand our sin that we see our need for a Savior. And so Stephen here does something different. He takes an entirely different approach than what we often see today. He actually focuses on God's faithfulness in contrast to the Israelites' disobedience. In Acts 6.11, it tells us that the religious Jews had secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him, Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They went on in verse 13 and set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So in our passage this morning, Stephen is addressing their accusations. Now, he's addressing their accusations, but he's also dealing with their condition. And at the same time that he's dealing with their condition, the very things that he's sharing with them is the very place that he is drawing his strength and confidence and boldness from. See, as he goes to proclaim, as he goes to to share what is actually taking place and the truth, he's actually finding his strength and encouragement and boldness in the very foundation of what he's sharing. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because I think sometimes when we share our faith, we kind of detach from it. We're thinking out here rather than right here. The very thing that we are proclaiming that Christ is our hope, that he is our salvation, that he is the only one who can redeem us, As we're proclaiming that, that ought to be strengthening and renewing us and empowering us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what you see Stephen do. Remember that Stephen is a man full of wisdom and faith in the Holy Spirit. And so rather than defending himself... We see here in verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? Now notice what he didn't do. He didn't come back and say, listen, you have a bunch of liars that are saying this stuff about me. He didn't seek to defend himself. He sought to proclaim the same, the glory of God. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus didn't demand his own rights. He demanded them for others. As followers of Christ, 
the world calls this somewhat being thick-skinned. I don't think that's what thick-skinned is. The reality is, is that our focus has to be on God's glory rather than man's glory. Our focus has to be on taking the opportunity to demonstrate his purpose, his goodness, his greatness, rather than defend ourselves. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't stand up for ourselves, but we need to understand the situation that we're in. The truth is, is for some of us in this situation, I've wondered myself, how would I respond to this? I probably would have responded with, you're liars. You got people lying. Let me show you where you're wrong. But what we need to see is that God works through each of these situations to proclaim his glory and goodness. Ben and I were coming back from Minnesota a few weeks ago. And Paul Orlinghouse, who's pastor of Soma, had gone to the conference. And so he was on both of our flights as well. And Paul had started on this flight, and Ben and I were quite lucky. We, uh, we ended up with an empty row behind us. And so both of us had work to do. And so we were already looking at this airplane with the fairly small airplane, two seats side by side, looking at each other going, who's going to pull out their laptop first and annoy the other one? And so um, both of us were like, we both got stuff to do. And so the flight attendant came by and asked us if we wanted to go to the open seat. And I'm like, yep, sure, that sounds great. And so we were fine. But we looked up at Paul, and Paul's about four rows in front of us. And he sat down next to the person that's a talkative person. <laughs> and what Paul shared with us was, he said, Literally, he said, I knew I was in for it the moment I put my jacket in the overhead bin and the guy goes, hey, my name's so-and-so. And I say, when I'm not kidding with you, that for three hours, this man did not stop talking. <laughs> and I looked up, and at first, my whole thought was, man, I'm sorry, Paul. Like, woo, but I'm glad I'm not you. And so, thinking, I'm not rescuing him. And so... Ben and I both, at different points, we talked about it later, both of us had looked up and both quickly put our heads down. Um, and so when we looked up about an hour into this flight, finally you had seen Paul, which had his work stuff. He finally, you could see him finally set it down. Like it was just, this is the time for the Lord. Like I'm not going to get any other opportunity. So this is it. And so he said, he shared with us, he said, I just finally had to decide that this was going to be God's time and not mine. And what ended up happening is throughout the rest of this flight, we would occasionally look up and you could see Paul using his hands and Paul's very expressive with his hands. And so at that point I knew, oh, he's actually going to be, he's sharing the gospel with this guy. And he can share and you see this happening. And what started happening was we were in the back seats and we just started praying for him. God, give Paul wisdom and he shares with this. And so they parted the airplane together, having exchanged emails and phone numbers, and the guy saying, I, I want to talk further about this, and, but would you take a look at what I believe? And so they, they, they left with this and left with this kind of relationship. See, Stephen does this. He comes to a place where he realizes this isn't about him. This is about God. And he's going to do it for God's glory. And so rather than defending himself, Stephen reminds them here of Israel's history and God's loving faithfulness. So there's two ways that we see God's loving faithfulness 
And it's two ways that his loving faithfulness is demonstrated to us. The first is through his presence. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says this. It says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Now, understand when he's saying hear me, in Greek, this particular word is a phrase that's used which is demanding a response. It's, it's, it's expecting a response. He's pleading with them saying, I need you to hear because you haven't yet heard. That's what he's saying. And so this is a pleading, in essence, with them to hear this. And it goes on, it says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Now what we're going to see in this entire passage is Stephen deal with the issue of God's presence. You see, the Israelites were so concerned The Jews were so concerned with the temple. In fact, they had come to a place where they worshipped the temple of God rather than worshipping the God of the temple. They had become more enamored with the place. The truth is, this is not God's house. This building, there is nothing sacred about the building. What is sacred is the temple that resides in us. Those have had a place of faith in Christ where the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. That is what is sacred. And what he is telling them here is, listen, they're saying, listen, the temple is important because that's where God resides. And what Stephen is making the argument of is, "Uh uh-uh. God does not reside in that temple. And let me show you. Let me show you that he has never resided in the temple. It was to be a place where you might come and worship and experience the presence of God, but it was not where God lived and resided. And so we see this again in verse 9 and 10. He says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. So God is in Mesopotamia. He's now in Egypt. Look where else he's at. Verse 20 and 21. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. So he's there again in Egypt. He's there when when Moses is present. And then Moses leaves Egypt and he wanders because he's afraid that he's going to be captured He's been exposed as having killed the Egyptian master. And it says that he appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Right away, he's saying, listen, your idea that the temple here? No, he doesn't start by saying, yeah, it's just true. Take it or leave it. He's showing them that throughout history, God has worked outside of the box that they have put him in. More importantly, that the same God that was put inside that box that is not in that box is the same God that has walked faithfully with his people wherever they're at. This was to be a display and demonstration of God's faithfulness. It was to show them that God is a faithful, 
loving God. Jeremiah 23, 24, and I want to encourage you to write that passage down. Jeremiah 23, 24 says this. It says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? Speaks. This speaks to God's omnipresence, his presence everywhere. And I want to be careful how I say that. This is not a mystical force. This is the living, active God who is present with us. And his presence is not limited by location. He's not a God who is with Robin one day, and if he's with Robin, can't possibly be with Jim or with Jeremy. He's a God who is present. He is present in all things. See, God's faithful. He does not leave them. He does not leave them alone. And in this moment, the very thing that Stephen is proclaiming, which is that God was present and present outside of the confines of the temple, Stephen himself is relying on in this council as he's being accused of being blasphemous. He is relying on the fact that God is present with him in that moment. And it's in direct contrast to the lack of faithfulness of man. It's in direct contrast to it. See, the patriarchs, the ones that had received the promise, the patriarchs go and because of jealousy sell their brother into slavery in Egypt. It's not faithful to the promise. Notice what else it says in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God. Here's what he's saying. Listen, you had that tent with you that entire time? And you still didn't really have the favor of God. Because God's presence is not bound in things made by man. It's the beauty of God's presence. His faithfulness is is that for those that have repented and believed on Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, His presence is with us always. And for those who have not yet responded to God's grace. Know that God is present. There is nothing hidden from his eyes. God is present. The second way that we see his faithfulness is through his promise. So Stephen first addresses God's presence and then he deals with his promise. See, God is the ultimate promise keeper. He's the ultimate promise keeper. For many of us, we know what it feels like to have 
a broken promise. Each of us have probably all broken promises, and many of us have experienced broken promises. Some of those promises may seem like, ah, and others of them may have hurt very deeply. God is the ultimate promise keeper. He is the one that demonstrates his faithfulness through the promise that was given. Now notice what this promise is in verse 8. It says, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Why did he give him the covenant of circumcision? Verse 5 tells us, yet he gave him no inheritance, this is Abraham, in the land, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for years. In Genesis 17, it tells us about this, this circumcision covenant that was given. And Genesis 17 lets us know why it was given. And this is what it says. Genesis 17, 9 through 12, it says this, and God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. You shall be, a circumcised, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. It was to be an outward sign of the covenant. Deuteronomy 10, 15, and I want to encourage you to write this one down. Deuteronomy 10, verses 15, actually says, here's what this sign actually is. So if it's to be a sign, what is it to be a sign of? And here's what it says. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at a place that the Lord will choose, excuse me, I am reading from 16, not 10. Yet the Lord set his heart, excuse me, in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn for the Lord your God is God of gods and lords of lords the great the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe it was to be an outward sign of an inward condition the heart that had been circumcised through faith by the Lord Romans 2:29 adds to this and i'm taking a moment here because i think it's an important piece that is for us to understand that this, this tradition of circumcision was part of the law. It was to expose the fact that the people, while they were a part of the people of the promise, the law was showing them that they could not walk in righteousness by themselves. That the only way that they could walk in righteousness was through Jesus. And so Romans 2 verse 29 says this, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Where does the circumcision occur? It occurs in the heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
It was to be an outward sign of an inward condition until the time at which Christ died once and for all and offered the ultimate sacrifice. So what do we see here about God's promise? We see three truths, and they're important ones that we need to grab hold of. The first is that deliverance is received through faith. Deliverance is received through faith. Now notice what it says here in Acts. How do we pull that from the scripture? Well, take a look here for a moment at verse 5. When he says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. All right. So we live in a culture that says, get everything in writing, and then don't entirely trust it. Right? Not giving to you. God said, I'm going to give you land that I'm not giving to you today, but by the way, all of your descendants are going to have this land, and it's yours. Today, you don't even have a foot length that's yours. Like, there's not even a spot to go to the bathroom on that's yours. But I'm going to give you all this, and oh, by the way, I'm going to give it to your descendants. But I realize you have no descendants. Now, if Abraham the likelihood that Abraham would have been like us, which would have been like, yeah, wrong, not doing that deal. Abraham responds to this God, to our God, in faithfulness. He responds with an act of faith, hearing God and responding to him through faith. This is why it can be said in Romans 4, that it was reckoned to Abraham because of his faith. His salvation was reckoned to him in Romans 4 because of his faith, not because he followed the law. And so our deliverance, the fulfillment of God's promise, is experienced through faith. He's pointing this out to them. He's saying, listen, I'm not tearing down the law. Stephen's pointing out to them, I'm not trying to change the law. I'm showing you what the law was supposed to do and what Jesus has done. See, Abraham, it wasn't that Abraham had righteousness because he simply was circumcised and attempted to follow the law. It was because Abraham had faith that God would do and was doing what he had promised to do. And as a response... Abraham goes and circumcises his son, his only son. So now he's been given this son and he's told to go circumcise him. He's responding in faith. Romans 4.13 says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Goes on in verse 20, no unbelief made by him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his face as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Wow. When we walk by faith, we get the opportunity to see God's deliverance. It is only through faith that we experience his deliverance from sin. 
goes on in verse 22, that is why this faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's awesome. So his promise, his deliverance is received through faith. The second thing is that the fulfillment is based on God's faithfulness, not man's. See, the reason that it's done through faith and not works, when I say, well, that doesn't sound right, faith is just not right, I mean, I ought to be able to work my way to heaven, to a relationship with God. By its very nature, it rejects God's promise. See, God's promise said that he would do the delivering. And so when we come in and we say, oh, hey, guess what? I got these works. What we're actually doing without even realizing it is rejecting the promise of God. We're actually saying, God, what you said isn't true. See, God is the deliverer. His faithfulness is not based on man's faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says this. And I want to encourage you to write that one down as well. This is what he says. I think this is too easily forgotten. As followers of Christ... We experience faithlessness in our life. And rather than turning towards God, we get ourselves deeper into that faithlessness. And here's what he says. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because at the heart of who God is, one of his core attributes is faithfulness. See, his promise is based on his faithfulness, not man's. Notice this. The Israelites were told what was to come. They were told that they were going to be captives in Egypt. And yet, even though they were told that they were going to be captives in Egypt, the brothers themselves, the 12 patriarchs, sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. They sell him out of their jealousy They were faithless. Those that were in Egypt desired to remain in Egypt. And it says in that passage that their hearts are turned towards Egypt. In fact, it says that Moses himself supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand Their faithlessness. And then, they're stuck in the wilderness and they're brought out in the wilderness and they turn against Moses. Their faithlessness again. And yet, God continues to fulfill his promise. Why? Because the fulfillment of his promise is not based on man's faithfulness, it's based on God's faithfulness. This ought to cause us to rejoice. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who's offering salvation that's been merciful after merciful after merciful and shown mercy after mercy after mercy. The third thing that we see here 
is that a rejection of God's deliverance leads to his judgment. A rejection of God's deliverance leads to his judgment. Jeremiah 7, 9 says this. In this part of this passage, it tells us specifically what is occurring and what the consequence will occur as we reject the deliverance of God. It says this. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and make offerings to Baal? And go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all those abominations? This is what he says. Has this house, which was called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, and you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, where do they place their trust? In the house, and to the place that I gave you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. This is at the heart of what Stephen is saying. Listen, away. they had turned their hearts away from God, therefore God had turned away from them. He had turned them over, as Acts says here in Acts 7, Verse 42, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. He turned them over to their sin, to their own depravity, to their own hardness of heart. That is not the place that we want to be. In the judgment of God. David Guzik says this, one of the accusations against Stephen was that he blasphemed the temple. It wasn't that Stephen spoke against the temple, but against the way Israel worshipped the temple of God instead of the God of the temple. Just as Israel worshipped the calf in the wilderness, so now they were worshipping the works of their own hands. See, the rejection of God's deliverance leads to his judgment. When we reject the salvation of God, we will face his judgment. One of the most amazing parts of the story is that God uses those who are rejecting God and blesses those who are serving him. Either way, God is going to use you for his purpose. The question is, is it going to be to fulfill his purpose in the power of his blessing or is it going to be so that you might one day experience his wrathful judgment? point here was this, that when we serve other gods, we are separating ourselves from the Lord, and we are experiencing his judgment, and we know from Scripture that for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, that God will discipline with the hopes of getting us to turn in repentance towards him, because he loves us. And so he draws that out and he says, listen, you need to know 
that your worship of idols did not go unnoticed. God turned away, and you need to see how he turned away. You can imagine for a moment that the Israelites were some like we can be it from time to time, where God's grace becomes a freedom to sin. Paul reminds us that we're not to use God's grace as a reason or permission to sin. And the truth is the Israelites had come and they believed that because they had the tent of witness in their presence and because they had the tabernacle in their presence that God was somehow pleased and with them. God was reminding him there is no sacred ritual that you can do except submit your life to Jesus. It brings me honor. And his point was, listen, just because you believe that you are walking and worshiping sacred things, if it's not Christ, you're serving an idol. This week I was talking with another friend and we're talking about a situation where an individual who was married would, the spouse desired Jesus. But the other spouse just seemed to worship other things. And the truth is, is what we began talking about was how it's so important that we are a light of the truth of God in the face of that spiritual blindness. Because as people, we were created to worship. And if we're not Worshiping God, we will worship something else. And worshiping other things is at the heart of discontent. It's at the heart of a lack of peace. When we become discontent, it's because we're worshiping idols, not because we're worshiping God. I want to be careful how I say that. It doesn't mean that every moment that I have of discontentment, but it does mean that if I'm dwelling in discontent, That my focus has become not on worshiping God, but it's become focused on the idol that I find that might bring me peace. So, move through these real fast here. How does Stephen actually then wrap this up? Well, it's unique. Remember his first call there is to hear. Well, he comes right back to them. He said, listen, I've shown you his presence and I've shown you his promise. The truth is is that you should see his presence and you should see his promise and you know the truth and yet you reject the truth and so you have blinded yourself to the truth. And what he does here is he confronts that spiritual blindness. So how are we to lovingly address spiritual blindness? The first is to confront the sin of pride. Confront the sin of pride. Now now let me share with this. That doesn't mean that we walk around and look for somebody that's spiritually blind and confront them with that sin. What he's talking about here are religious people who are spiritually blind. They know the truth. We love the verses that speak of gentle correction. 
Stephen's word to the religious people who were spiritual blind was, you stiff-necked people. That's not gentle. That's direct and clear. Understand the difference with that for us, because it's important. Spiritual blindness is not to be played around with. It's because it's blind, it has to be confronted directly. It doesn't mean that I confront it in anger, and it certainly doesn't mean that I confront it with a spirit of pride, because I'm walking in the same sin then. But it does mean that I confront it directly. And that's what Stephen does. He confronts the sin directly. The second thing that he does here is he exposes areas of disobedience through God's word. Notice in 52, he says this, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before in the coming of the righteous one. He's speaking to the history of Israel out of the word, and then he goes on and he says, Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He's confronted it directly and he's exposed areas of differences, areas of disobedience through God's word. When somebody's spiritually blind, you can't be the authority. You can't be the authority. The truth is, is that really we can't be the authority in any matter dealing with Christ. God has to be the authority. And the only authority that we have is God's word. And so it's important that when we expose disobedience, that it's bound in God's word. As a high school kid who was walking in disobedience to Christ, some of you knew the story of my own grandfather coming to me. Or actually, I went to him and we were sitting in his living room and I asked him, how do you know if you're secure in your faith? And he sat me down and he opened it up to 1 Timothy and said, start reading. Got done with 1 Timothy, looked at it and went, yeah, it still doesn't tell me anything. Story. He said, read it again. And many of you know that what came out of that story was that what he came to after my second read through of that passage going, yeah, that helps me not at all. Him looking at me saying, listen, you will never be confident in your faith if you're walking in disobedience. I know what you're trying to do. I wanted confidence in Christ without obedience. And what he did was he used the scripture in my life to begin to expose sin. So when we are exposing sin with others of disobedience, the scripture has to be at the basis of it. The final thing, we're to direct to Christ's righteousness. We're to direct to Christ's righteousness. In Colossians 1.28, it says this. Colossians 1.28. And I want to encourage you to write this passage down because I think it brings a tremendous amount of hope. And this is what it says. Him we proclaim. Notice what it says. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Warning and teaching. We point them to Jesus. We point them to Jesus. Now, we're going to find that the outcome for Stephen was not the greatest outcome in this life. 
but he got to graduate to glory. Today, there is a day that Bola is standing with Stephen. Think about that for a moment. Bola stands with Stephen. As those who have repented and believed on Christ, trusting in God's presence and promise through their trial, giving God glory. May that be us as the body of Christ, that when we are confronted with the question and the validity of who Jesus is and the truth of who he is, may we proclaim God's presence and his promise. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. And that through Jesus, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit every single day with us. That's the gospel. The gospel in power. Knowing full well that there may be those who do not like it because their hearts have been hardened. And knowing full well that in this life there may be a cost. Trusting that the same faithful God who has given us deliverance from our sin is the same faithful God who will work it out for his purposes and who will be standing in glory with on the day that he calls us home. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, may we be a people like Stephen, a people who proclaim your presence and your promise as a part of your faithfulness. Father, may we not look to diminish the blow of sin and exaggerate the benefits of grace, but God, may we expose and reveal you so that people might fall in love with you, not simply your grace. May we be a people, Father, who are submitted to you and a body who glorifies you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.